Hey everyone, Larry Mishkin here welcoming you to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show as we roll along in 2024, uh, which I'm going to confess and talk a whole lot about today. For me, has been great because the Michigan Wolverines kicked some ass last week. And with all due respect to Washington, who now has lost their coach to Alabama, and I guess that happens. Um, sorry, but, uh, you know, you guys were good. You were, you were legit opponents, and we were Destiny's team this year. So there was no stopping us. We rolled along. It was uh, wonderful. I was in Atlanta. I got to watch with my son and my granddaughter, uh, who is our good luck charm, put her in a little maize and blue onesie, and boys are ready to rock and roll on the field. Uh, but uh, when I was talking about it with my son, you know, it really got me thinking back to the last time, uh, not really the last time, because the football team won a championship in 97, but in 1989, the Michigan men's basketball team made an unprecedented run through the uh, through the bracket, starting as a number six or seventh seed, uh, beat one good team after another, and found themselves in the uh, championship game on April 3rd, 1989, against Seton Hall out in Seattle in the Kingdom. And in overtime, uh, the Wolverines, as my father-in-law would say, the, the right team prevailed. Uh, it was huge. It was big for those of us who had been going to school there in the 80s and people in the 70s, 60s. You go back. Well, it was the first championship in a major sport that Michigan had won in some time. And they celebrated just like it. Uh, they sometimes a little on the wrong side of the law. But generally speaking, they, they, they you know, behaved and just whooped it up and consumed a lot of whatever they were consuming. Uh, but the big thing was that three days later, two days later on April 5th and then the following day, April 6th, the Grateful Dead had a two shows scheduled in Chrysler Arena in Ann Arbor at the site of the home where the Michigan basketball team played. Uh, many of us thought that this was, you know, this was more than just a coincidence. You know, this was destiny. It was meant to be. And although we all had gotten our tickets for the shows a long time ago, primarily because it had been a while since the Dead had played uh, in Ann Arbor, uh, we all rushed out there to kind of take in the full celebration. And so we're going to play some music from both of those shows. And let's get right started with just the way it started on April 5th, the Grateful Dead's first show in Ann Arbor in 1989 in 10 years two days after the national championship, and here's what they broke out to start the show. You shoot me a look that says, let's go. Yes, and it feels most like running the red light. Now there ain't no point looking behind us, no. No, it's still out Feel like a stranger. Just like, just like a stranger. like a stranger awesome tune bobby leading the way out of the door there uh a song that in the 80s was quite often 
a show opener. Um, sometimes it would be the number two song if Jerry was opening that night. Uh, but uh, what a great song. How fitting, right? Feeling like a stranger. You're damn right they were. I went to school in Michigan from 1980 to 1984. During that period of time, I probably saw 45 dead shows, not one of them in Ann Arbor, Michigan. They had played in 79 there, the year before I got there, and they would not come back, for whatever their reasons, until this show, this night, 1989. So yeah, they felt like strangers in Ann Arbor, but you know what? Not really, just kind of to the town, but those of us, you know, that have seen them, and even if you had just seen them for the first time, the Grateful Dead never really felt like strangers. It was always like coming home, being with the family, um, you know, and uh, just being a part of the whole bigger picture. Um, and there we were, uh, all of us, uh, this whole group of friends of mine uh, who had all graduated right around the same time within a few years of each other one way or the other, but who we had seen a lot of dead shows with. And many of these guys who are a year older than I uh, had seen their very first dead shows ever at uh, Chrysler Arena in 1979. Uh, so, you know, it, it was just, uh, it was a throwback time for everybody. We all went to Zingerman's and got the best deli sandwiches in the history of the world uh, and, and really just made the most out of... Um, uh, uh, being in Ann Arbor and, and really getting to experience all of this. We were all decked out in our Michigan-themed Jim Richmond-made tie-dyes. Jim Richmond was a dude in Ann Arbor uh, who was well-known for his T-shirts and tie-dye work, and he got a great idea to uh, always tie into the Michigan sports scene a little bit, and it never failed to impress. Uh, and some of those shirts I still have sitting in my closet, or else maybe my son Matthew has them, along with all my other missing-in-action uh, tie-dye T-shirts from... Uh, the Grateful Dead days. But we had a great time. Uh, what a great way to start it off. We're all still kind of, you know, high on the national championship, an exciting game. They won in overtime with Rumiel Robinson, a 60% free throw shooter, stepping up to the line and hitting two big ones, one to tie and one to win at the very end of overtime. And uh, we, were, we were still celebrating and we were still going wild. Um, Feels Like a Stranger, of course, is off of the Go to Heaven album. Dead played it 208 times. The first was March 31, 1980 at the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey, uh, another very uh, famous venue for the Grateful Dead, not to be confused with the Capitol Theater in Port Chester, New York, um, but nevertheless uh, famous for some of its own very special Dead shows. And we'll get to one of them one day and play through them because it was kind of a cool place and another place on my list of, of Dead venues that I need to go see. Uh, Feels Like a Stranger was played for the last time on July 5th, 1995 at the Riverport Amphitheater in Maryland Heights, just outside St. Louis, Missouri. Um, luckily enough, I was at that show and, uh, and got to see that. Um, but one of the things I love about this version, this is, these are the late 1980 versions of Feels Like a Stranger, 88, 89, maybe even a little bit to 90. And I played this particular clip because of this. Uh, and, and Bobby sings, uh, yes, and it feels most like running a red light. And I really love that most like. I can't explain why. Um, because sometimes before and after he would sing, yes, and it feels about like running a red light, or yes, and it feels just like running a red light. But for some reason, that most like running a red light really stuck with me. So I was happy to have uh, an example of that to play. Um, and at this time, when uh, the boys would come up, out and open with uh, Feels Like a Stranger, uh, nine times out of ten, they were going into this next tune, so uh, let's keep it going.
nothing like a feels like a stranger into Franklin's Tower to get a show going in that night in Ann Arbor. Everybody was so high and so pumped anyway uh, that to give us a one-two punch like that to open the show uh, was special. And uh, we all loved it. Um, it was uh, uh, the beginning of not only just a great night, but of a great two-night run. Um, and, and, uh, and, and really wonderful. It feels like a, uh, Franklin's Tower, of course, is uh, from Blues for Allah. Uh, the Dead played it 222 times, most often uh, as the third or final piece of the um, Help on the Way, Slipknot, Franklin's Tower uh, trio of songs that just roll one right into another and was a very traditional second set opener. Um, in later years, especially with Phil Lesh playing and with Dead and Co. and uh, at the even at the um, uh, 50th anniversary, uh, sometimes it would be played as a very long encore. Um, sometimes they'd play it to open a second set. The Dead would, from time to time, play it to open a show, and uh, it, it was also a great way to open a show because as soon as you hear those first notes of "Help on the Way," you know that you're going to make your way through that two slip not eventually into Franklin's Tower, which is kind of like eating, you know, uh, saving the best for last, although they're all great tunes, but um, uh, there's something about Franklin's that really got a place rocking, and uh, that place was certainly rocking on that night. Uh, so 222 times, first played on June 17th, 1975 at Winterland Arena in San Francisco. Now that was, of course, during the year of the Grateful Dead's hiatus when they were playing, I think maybe only a total of four shows all year, so that's technically when these tunes uh, were broken out. However, the next time they were played uh, was just a couple of months later on August 13th at the Great American Music Hall in San Francisco, a show that the Dead released as their One for the Vault, um, a, a series that actually began before the Dick's Pick series. And for a while, we all just assumed that that's what it was going to be because they came out with Two for the Vault, and we were all waiting for Three for the Vault, which eventually did come out, but only after like almost all the Dick's picks had come out and a good number of the Dave's picks. Um, but it was cool. I mean, this was the first time that the Dead had like formally released uh, an entire show, um, you know, as, as like, you know, one of their shows from the vault rather than uh, a live album, which would have different cuts from, you know, compiled from different shows on a particular tour or something like that. And, uh, you know, the, the Dead heads ate it up. But if you want to hear great early versions of Help on the Way, Slipknot, and Franklin's, uh, go check out one from the vault. It's still there, and uh, you can listen to it, and uh, it was a great show. Uh, it's really funny with a little invitation on the front. You're hereby invited to come see this, which I guess was a, a replication of the ticket because it was what really made this show special again. It was, it was just one of very few shows, one of only four shows the Dead played that year. So, uh, you know, getting in was almost the primary issue, and some would say that what they played after that was beside the point, just getting to see them during a down year of, of, of shows in terms of numbers was a very special treat. But then to find out, you know, either at the time or with the appreciation of, you know, looking back after a few years and realizing how special those shows in 75 were and being among the first to hear this, you know, these combination of tunes and, uh, and all of it was um, uh, such a great thing. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of cool. It's my book. Uh, the tune was last played on June 22nd, 1995 at the Knickerbocker Arena in Albany, New York. Uh, another legendary dead town and uh, uh, dead arena. I think they have um, Live from the Nick, which is not a uh, individual show, but a compilation of a, a three-show run 
at the Knickerbocker Arena in the late 80s, early 90s, I want to say. And that's great. It, it's, it's got great samples of music from their time, from that particular time period. And, um, you know, great crowd, the East Coast crowds. Uh, may have been a little um, uh, more uh, rough around the edges, you know, not afraid to throw elbows or uh, stuff like that to get into good position, you know, whereas the West Coast crowds would, you know, would always just be, hey, man, welcome to the show, you know, and make plenty of room for you. Uh, but nobody really had the overall enthusiasm, I think, think, like the East Coast deadheads. And, you know, on a good night in the garden or any of, you know, any places in Providence, any any of the great venues up and down the East Coast where the dead would play, um, Brendan Byrne, uh, you know, the Spectrum in Philly, just so many of them during that period of time when I was going to shows. And the crowd energy was overwhelming always and uh, so appreciative of the dead and so loud. And, and not that the folks on the West Coast, you know, had, you know, were you know, had gotten, you know, a little too relaxed about the dead or anything like that. They just enjoyed it in an entirely different way, still with a lot of great enthusiasm uh, and everything. But, uh, you know, it's like being in Yankee Stadium when Reggie Jackson hit that third homer in a row and the place was up for grabs. And, you know, you, you hear that kind of sound. You only get that sound from an East Coast crowd. And um, so, uh, you know, Knickerbocker Arena, last place for them to play it. Interesting because they still had a few shows on that tour rounding out June and then into the beginning of July in St. Louis and at uh, Soldier Field. And it never came up again in the rotation, which is too bad for all of us. Um, but like I say, Phil and his friends, whichever group he has assembled, likes to play it a lot. Dead & Co. is really big on it. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's something that's not gone forever. It'll, it'll come back and somebody, uh, J-Rad uh, does a very good job, although they don't always play the whole three-song suite. Sometimes they, they just will do a quick Franklin's, but they play it as well as anybody playing it today. So anywhere you can pick one up, uh, we always like Franklin's Tower, and it's, it, it's always really a lot of fun. Now, um, just to, you know, show you the power of the, the uh, Ann Arbor crowd, you know, who's involved with all of this, you know, we all know good buddy uh, Alex Wellens. He's been on the show now and uh, uh, provided us with some great insight on the sphere and uh, just general live music uh, experiences that most of us still kind of stand in awe of. Um, and he's part of this whole West Coast crowd and um, always a pleasure to see him and have fun. And he made it down uh, to the game in Houston last week along with uh, uh, another West Coast buddy, SVL, uh, good Steve. We always like to have Steve around. He's a big fan. And our good buddy, Kerry, from uh, Chicago made it. Uh, I was, as I say, was in Atlanta and uh, just as happy sitting there with the granddaughter, but uh, certainly uh, very awesome to be at a big game like that. And um, I was talking to him uh, the other day about it all, and then he sent me an article. And I'm going to read it to you here in a minute. It's from my, uh, a blog a guy named Alan Paul writes called Low Down and Dirty. And it's titled, The Night Jerry Garcia Got Stuck in an Ann Arbor Riot Celebrating a National Championship. Well, I write him right back and say, this is amazing. I'm about to feature those two shows on this week's podcast because why not? Michigan just won another big national championship. So let's stick with the theme and, and keep it rolling, to which uh, he was very excited about. So uh, big shout out to Alex for sending this over. Appreciate it. And um, this is a story that I didn't know. Uh, you know, we knew that uh, on the night of the championship and into the next day, uh, there was a lot of celebrating slash riding, depending on who you are and, and how you generally view property laws. Um, but, uh, you know, the, 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 the uh, celebratory tone had not really softened yet in Ann Arbor. And so uh, uh, Mr. Paul here writes uh, about how a friend in Ann Arbor had sent him some videos of celebrants 
uh, in the streets uh, following Michigan's uh, victory uh, in the college national championship football game, and it got him thinking again about the last time Michigan was an undisputed national champ in a major sport, and that's important because in 97, uh, the very corrupt coaches poll tried to change history and pretend that Michigan had not gone into a bowl game undefeated and won that bowl game as the number one ranked team. And at the urging of another communist, Jim Nance from CBS News or CBS Sports, who spent the whole damn Orange Bowl acting as though Michigan hadn't just been named national champion by the Associated Press, uh, you know, spewed on and on and on about why Tom Osborne was entitled to share the, the, the championship with them. So it, it's considered a disputed national championship, although uh, we in Ann Arbor are very comfortable with it, especially since that time Nebraska has sucked big time and uh, Michigan sucked for a little bit of the time, but since then has uh, kicked ass and regularly beats up on Scott Frost, the quarterback from that time. But this is all for another moment. Uh, so 1989, this is true, is the last time Michigan won an undisputed national championship, and uh, they won it on the third. He notes that the deadhead shows scheduled for the fifth and sixth uh, in Ann Arbor, and um, gets into a whole bunch of you know love about Romeo Robinson's free throws, which we talked about. But later that night on the third, the dead flew from Pittsburgh, where they had played in the Civic Arena, uh, into Detroit Metro Airport. And vans were sent to pick them up to drive them to their Ann Arbor hotel where they're going to spend the night, have the next day off to kind of recuperate, and then go at it uh, for the next two nights. However, it turns out that the driver of the van carrying Jerry and Bobby did not know where he was going. And the lead driver said to him, just follow me. Now, of course, this is in the days before cell phones or anything like that. So the minute they pulled out of the uh, uh, Detroit Metro uh, airport and got on 94 heading to Ann Arbor, you know, if, if the first driver was going too fast, the second driver was going too slow, a truck cut him off, uh, there was no idea. So, right, uh, this is pre-GPS, pre-pocket computer travel. The driver had no idea where he was going, took a wrong turn, and ended up on South University Street on the campus's southern edge, which was one of the center points of the wild celebra uh, celebrations. And this was hours after the game had ended, but, you know, if you want to ever go pull down video on YouTube about it, people were going well into the night. They jumped up on a... Uh, on a metal awning over the entrance to a, uh, uh, a Chinese restaurant, which uh, they eventually broke off and it, you know, everybody fell to the ground and they kept going, turning over cars and, you know, college kids, what are you going to do with them? So this is where uh, uh, Garcia and Weir and their driver are stuck in the midst of this, you know, virtual riot, uh, which was actually a word that people who were covering it at the time used, although, you know, maybe now we look back on that and kind of laugh and say, well, that wasn't really a riot. But it was a lot of wild celebrating. And so Garcia and Weir in this van sat there uh, watching this very edgy revelry unfold around them. Um, and as they uh, would later share, it was not a very happy or secure feeling. They're not Michigan fans. And in fact, I don't know if they cheered for any college teams because I don't think any of them ever went to college. Um, but they might have. Uh, but either way, that's not what they were in Ann Arbor for. And I'm sure for them, it was probably an unfortunate coincidence because plenty of people would have shown up just to see them anyway. But this brought a whole nother level of people into town who were all looking uh, uh, for a way to party. So uh, Mr. Paul here points out that uh, things were truly out of control in the streets. The Ann Arbor News headline read, Victory Celebration Turns Ugly as Fans Rampage, and said in part that the crowd broke windows, damaged cars and businesses, and called multi caused multiple injuries. Police estimated the t total damage uh, at $84,000, which now seems like a very quaint, almost, you know, oh, pfft 
not that any of us necessarily are sitting on $84,000 at the moment, but, you know, I mean, you, now we think of riots and stuff, you know, in the hundreds of millions of dollars of damage. And, uh, but nevertheless, the students went out and did what they could do. Um, and in the midst of all of this, uh, imagine what would have happened if somebody knew, some of the people in the crowd knew that Jerry and Bobby were in that van. Um, and he, he says something like, you know, thank God for tinted windows. Um, and, uh, you know, nobody, nobody saw them in the van, so nobody knew th what they were there. Um, it would be fascinating to hear uh, uh, Garcia's spin on it. Of course, he's not around to tell us anymore, but maybe someday we'll get Bobby to, uh, to give us uh, some information. But Dennis McNally, who at the time was the band's publicist, um, and, and uh, has become one of their main biographers. Not at often woke up when they stopped, he was in the van with them. When he found out why they were not moving, he scanned around for options. It was one in the morning, we played that night, and it was time to go get the rooms, he says. McNally found a nearby cab, also parked, asked the driver if he knew where the hotel was. He did, and the van slowly worked its way out of the masses, following the taxi to the lodgings. Now note, Garcia and Weir did not get out of the van and switch over to the taxi, because that would have set off probably a whole nother riot. So instead, they had to get a taxi taxi driver basically to lead them so that they could follow this guy again, follow me. Um, but McNally says uh, that they got there. Um, and, you know, and McNally says, can you imagine if the kids knew for one minute, uh, you know, that Jerry Garcia was, you know, sitting right there in their midst with them. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say they did know. Now, maybe they didn't know in the sense that Jerry Garcia is sitting in this car right here. But Garcia's Garcia, and he always just had that magical energy, energetic aura about him. And, you know, and I'd like to think that as those kids were out there romping and stomping and hooting it up and singing Hail to the Victors and whatever else they were singing, um, you know, that they had a kind of special energy in them that, you know, those of us who go to Grateful Dead shows get. And maybe, uh, maybe that was it. Maybe not, but uh, it's a great story and uh, perfect for uh, the theme of today's show. So big shout out to uh, Alex Wellens for sharing that with me. I'd also like to take advantage of this moment uh, just to touch on something that I did talk about briefly when Alex was on the show a few weeks ago, and that was uh, the unfortunate passing of a very good college friend of ours named Andy Godin. Uh, Andy was a year ahead of Alex and I, but he was part of this whole California crowd with Big Steve from California and, and, uh, uh, and Carrie from Chicago and, and all of these guys, and it, it was a very, very unfortunate tragedy, a man in his young, very young in his early 60s, uh, very, very untimely. Um, but it's amazing what, what the, the, the other people in this group have done, you know, with that in terms of, uh, you know, being obviously the, the basic stuff, providing moral support for his widow and daughters and, uh, you know, just trying to be the best friends they can be. Um, but Andy was a huge, huge, huge Michigan sports fan, loved the Michigan football team and no doubt would have absolutely have been in Houston uh, with Alex and Steve and Kerry and whoever else was there for this game because he wouldn't miss a game like that. Um, and in that same spirit, Steve and his son John uh, started up a little project, and, and Andy's last name was Godin, G-A-U-D-I-N, so the G-A-U was pronounced Go. Um, and uh, he had a license plate, a California license plate that was Go, G-A-U, Blue, of course, Go Blue is the big chant for the Michigan sports teams, and it was a very little clever play on his last name. So with the help of some photographic assistance from uh, good friend Jay Blakesburg, uh, who we haven't had on this show in ages and are going to have to get back because there's big things going on with him that we'll talk about later. Uh, all good. Um, uh, he, he got a great picture. Steve and his son John were able to do whatever people do when they take pictures and turn them into screens to make T-shirts. And on these wonderful Michigan blue shirts with a, a maze, think, you know, yellow maze, uh, you know, more Cornish than 
just you know corn looking than straight yellow, but you, you get the idea. Um, a picture of the, you know the license plate with the go blue, and uh, it was a big hit at the uh, game, and they all took pictures wearing the shirts, and no doubt in my mind, and I'm sure in their minds, and everybody who knew Andy, uh, that whenever we had one of those moments in the game where things were possibly beginning to look just a little bit grim. Uh, there was great energy coming from that as well. So it's not just uh, the Garcias of the world who can do it, but the folks like uh, Andy and you know these people with good souls who were always just around for the good times and uh, bad times if you needed them, but you know certainly for the good times and uh, being able to help make a good time a great time. And so congrats to all of those guys who made it to Houston. Uh, congrats to Steve and his son John on being so clever and, and, and ma actually making it happen instead of just talking about it. And uh, you know, can't say it enough times. Congrats to our good friends uh, in Ann Arbor and uh, at the University of Michigan. So yeah, we have a history here of the Grateful Dead and uh, Michigan celebrating things together. And you know, just think about this for a minute. If you know, you just want to play that game where you can say, "Boy, if I could go back to my college days." So 1989, uh, most of my buddies and I were already five to six years out of school, and we were all, you know, in the real world. I was a practicing attorney. I was married. I hadn't. Didn't have any kids yet, but uh, certainly I'm sure there was something that we were thinking about probably. And, you know, life was going in a direction a little bit different than when you were a college student. But that may have been one of the greatest weeks in the history of the University of Michigan. On April 1st, uh, they had their big annual celebration of the Hash Bash, which we've talked about before. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about again this year as we get closer to that date. We've had guests from Ann Arbor to come in and talk to us about it. And um, it, 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 it was just a, uh, always a great time. It had its lean years for a few years in there, but overall uh, a great time when like-minded folks would get together right in the middle of campus and do what we all do best when we're together. Um, and the university would just say, as long as you're standing all right here and nobody's causing trouble and nobody's doing anything, we're, we're going to let this little form of social unrest go and not turn it into something bigger than it has to be. And, you know, everybody enjoyed that. It all worked out well. And the Ann Arbor police were generally mellow and it was $5 is fine with me at the time. Possession of an ounce or less was a $5 parking ticket. So uh, people would go around and get one just to have it as a little sign of, you know, hey man, look at me, I got ticketed in Ann Arbor for my weed. Um, but on April 1st, they had the hash bash, uh, which would have been a Saturday, which was always great when it didn't like fall on a Monday or a Tuesday, which was never as much fun. But uh, so then two nights later on Monday, April 3rd, Michigan wins the national championship. And just for a minute to go back to April 1st in the hash bash, and I got a lot of buddies who are going to be bummed I brought this up, but we kind of have to. In the semifinals, they played Illinois, another Big Ten team, and a team that had pretty much mopped up on Michigan that year, had beat them in the final game of the regular season by 30 points, and uh, was just generally considered to be a cut above. And here was Michigan uh, that had managed to make its way through the tournament as a sixth seed and made it in to the final four and wound up playing Illinois in the national semifinals and in a, just an amazing game, one of the best college basketball games I've ever seen. And I think even my Illinois buddies would agree, absent the fact that they lost and we won. Um, it, uh, it came down to a big play at the end of the game. Sean Higgins skying uh, over Nick Anderson, future NBA star, uh, to put back in a missed shot almost right at the buzzer. Illinois tried a half court heave and missed. And uh, for many Michigan fans, that win may have even been bigger than the Seton Hall game. So that's happening on April 1st. Probably, again, one of the biggest wins in Michigan basketball history given the stage was being played on and the, the, uh, the opponent that they were playing. 
two nights later, they beat Seton Hall and win the national championship. And two nights after that, the Grateful Dead begin a two-night run in Ann Arbor. So, I mean, you know, if you're a, you know, if you're a standard Michigan student, male or female, uh, that's a damn good week. And, and this, this was just an excellent week. And, you know, we finally made it here uh, to uh, uh, April 5th and the dead are on stage. Uh, so let's dip back in and uh, one more time. Fade Away, beautiful tune. Um, it was funny because it was a tune that I always had a very mixed relationship with when I saw it because <clears throat> after 1983, <clears throat> anytime you heard it, uh, you know that you were getting into the end of the show. In fact, um, it, was, it was Throwing Stones Into Not Fade Away became a very standard closing two songs swing for the Grateful Dead. So when you would hear the opening notes of Throwing Stones, uh, although that was a great tune, and, and we'd always have fun with Not Fade Away. In your mind, you were thinking, oh, no, the show's ending. Um, and uh, But then, of course, you get caught up in the tunes, and on Not Fade Away, you know, it starts, and it's it's really energetic, and then they got the My Love is Bigger Than a Cadillac with every time Bobby jumping right up to the very front of the stage, throwing his arms wide apart as if to say how big his love, you know, and it was kind of corny, but it was, it was the dead, and it was Bobby, and we would laugh about it and have a great time with it, but this part of the cut that we just listened to where they then have about a five or six or seven minute jam, depending on how much energy they had and, you know, what was going on. And then they all of a sudden bring it back around with that very, you know, recognizable boom, 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 boom. And then boom, I'm going to tell you how it's going to be. And you just get that power surge and the crowd goes wild. Um, and uh, even if it did lead into the end of the show, uh, you know, it was great. And you'd be dancing your butt off and just thinking, well, you know, here they are. Maybe the last song, but they're playing it just the way it should be played. And uh, it would always be great. And now, Not Fade Away is, is a song credited to Buddy Holly. Uh, it was originally under his first and middle names, Charles Harden and Norman Petty, although Petty's co-writing credit is likely to have been more of a formality, and it was first recorded by uh, Holly and his band, The Crickets. Uh, Holly and The Crickets rec recorded the song in, of all places, Clovis, New Mexico, on May 27, 1957, the same day the song Every Day was recorded. The rhythmic pattern of Not Fade Away is kind of a variant on the very famous Bo Diddley beat, with the second stress occurring on the second rather than the third beat of the first measure, 
which was an update of the Hambone rhythm or Patajuba from West Africa. Jerry Allison, the drummer for the Crickets, pounded out the beat on a cardboard box. Allison, Holly's best friend, wrote some of the lyrics, though his name never appeared in the songwriting credits. Joe Malden played the double bass on the recording. It is likely that the backing vocalists were Holly, uh, Allison, and Nikki Sullivan, but nobody uh, can say for certain. Not uh, Fade Away was originally released as the B-side of the hit single, Oh Boy, which the Grateful Dead also covered just a very, very small handful of times in the 1970s and was included on the album The Chirping Crickets, 1957. The Crickets recording never charted as a single. In 2004, this song was ranked number 107 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. And it's been covered by a number of people, including the Rolling Stones. Uh, Their version of Not Fade Away was one of their first hits. It was recorded in January of 1964 and released by Decca Records on February 21, 1964 with Little by Little on the B-side. It was their first top 10 hit in the United Kingdom, reaching number three. Uh, London Records released the song in the U.S. on March 6, 1964 as the band's first single there with I Want to Be Your Man as the B-side. The single reached number 48 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. It kind of fell out of the Rolling Stones concert repertoire for a number of years. And then in the mid-90s, I want to say on the Voodoo Lounge Tour, uh, it made a comeback of all things as a show opener and um, uh, was always a lot of fun. Rush has covered uh, Not Fade Away. Tanya Tucker has covered Not Fade Away. John Schofield has covered Not Fade Away. And if there's any of you out there who don't know John Schofield is, then stop the podcast for a minute, make a note, go listen to John Schofield, come back and finish listening to me, and then later on make sure you go out and you listen to John Schofield, who's a, a guitar virtuoso, can play any type of music on really any type of stringed instrument, um, uh, has put out a number of his own stuff. I, I was turned on to him by my good buddy uh, Henry from uh, an early law firm way back in the day uh, who turned me on to John. I had helped him out on a project and he was kind enough to get me a John Schofield CD, uh, which led me right down the John Schofield path to all great things John Schofield recognized by none other than Warren Haynes. Uh, John has played with Government Mule a number of times in the lineup they call Sco Mule, and uh, it's just all of a sudden he becomes a hardcore rocker, uh, and he's just as good at that as he is at anything else. But John John Schofield has covered Not Fade Away Florence and the Machine, giving it a slightly uh, more recent twist, and of course, The Grateful Dead covered it. Um, It was never released by the Dead on an album, probably because they didn't write it, although they would release songs from time to time on albums uh, that they didn't write. Um, But it did show up on the 1971 live album, Grateful Dead, the band's uh, second live album, uh, the one with the the, the skull and roses on the front and the Hey Deadheads out there message on the inside, let us know you're there kind of thing. And a very, very famous album. So that that was the first time that uh, Deadheads who may not have seen the Dead yet in concert uh, got an opportunity to hear a live version of the Dead doing Not Fade Away. So popular, uh, they played it 560 times in the top five of all-time Grateful Dead songs played. Was first played by the Dead on February 19, 1969 at the Fillmore West in San Francisco. And it was last played on July 5, 1995. Again, at the Riverport Amphitheater in Maryland Heights in St. Louis. I was at the show that night with my good buddy Mark, uh, who I grew up with in St. Louis. And those shows were important to me because, uh, not only just because they were two of the last four shows The Grateful Dead ever played, uh, because I grew up in St. Louis, and just like I had never seen them in Ann Arbor until 1989, I never saw The Dead in St. Louis until 1995, and I'm glad I did, because after that they never played there anymore. And there's really something almost kind of 
wonderful about this is this is a feeling um, by the way that Rob Hunt had millions of times and I never got to experience and that is seeing a Grateful Dead show and then going home to go to bed uh, and you know and, and not like you know your college apartment or something but like literally home my mom and dad's home um, you know and and very surreal it was wonderful um, and uh, just a lot of fun uh, Mark and I had a great time and uh, wonderful to be able to see them in St. Louis and the uh, the not fade away and all of it was was great um, and so the, the first three shows we played have all come from the um, April 5th Ann Arbor show but uh, to give equal timing let's flip over now to uh, April 6th and uh, here's a show a song that popped up in the middle of the first set and has always been one of my favorites Always one of my favorite Grateful Dead tunes. Uh, this space is getting hot. Chrysler Arena was very hot by the second night, uh, both temperature-wise and the uh, how well the, the, the Dead were playing. And uh, that that wonderful uh, spirit from the championship uh, was still in the air. And you know how cool not just to be seeing the band, but to be seeing them in the stadium of the team that had just won the championship. So getting all the great Michigan vibes with all their banners and other stuff hanging uh, up in the rafters, all their famous players and. Uh, other accomplishments that were all great just short of winning the national title which they had now accomplished so kind of uh, completing that picture if you will um, you know but Althea such a wonderful song that uh, you know we've talked about in the past that even a guy like John Mayer considered it his favorite song and, and I have to say hearing John Mayer play it with Den & Co was a very special experience we talked about the show in Colorado with the kids behind us who thought maybe he played it better than Jerry haha ha, we don't need to go through that one again but John Mayer you know a big fan a great guitarist uh, one of his favorites, and why not? It's it's, it's just it's it's the music itself is tremendous. Uh, the lyrics from uh, from Hunter are wonderful, uh, as they always are. But the uh, the music is on this is, is so well, and Jerry always plays it just so so tight. It's it's it was always such a pleasure. And here in you know 1989, you know all things considered, much later in their career than you would say earlier in their career. You know, and Jerry's voice is sounding really really strong. Um, he's really coming out and belting it out. And I remember we were at the shows and we were all commenting, you know, on, on how, how good he sounded and, uh, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And it, it was just great to see. Um, Althea is a wonderful tune. 
Uh, as I say, you know, they, it was on the go to have an album, uh, so they were only able to play it 272 times. It was one of the quote-unquote newer tunes. First played on August 4th, 1979 at Oakland Civic Auditorium and was last played on July 8th, 1995 at Soldier Field in Chicago, the last show. Uh, uh, certainly uh, no coincidence there, a, a tune Jerry always loved and I'm sure felt very comfortable with, uh, even maybe in some of those moments when he wasn't feeling 100% or you know not feeling like his old self. There was always some tunes uh, he could fall back on and uh, this was one of them. Uh, my good buddy Tommy from my uh, Ann Arbor days forward uh, is a big fan of Althea. Whenever we hear it, we always think of him. So quick shout out to Tommy uh, up in uh, uh, the Hudson Valley, New York area, living his best life out there. And um, uh, just somebody I always think about. That's the great thing about all these dead shows. Anytime you hear a song, it takes you right back to a place. It takes you back to a moment. It takes you back to a person. And, uh, you know, these are always great things. And um, you know, Althea being played there that night was uh, certainly along those lines and uh, something that was just um, really, really special for all of us. Now we're going to take a quick switch over for a minute here, and we've got some uh, cannabis stories today that uh, kind of span the globe, literally, and uh, we will get to those. But first, as always, let's hear what... Uh, our good buddy Dan Humiston has lined up for us. But let me get to the point. Let's roll another joint. Turn the radio to laugh. I'm too alone to be proud. And you don't know how it feels. You don't know how it feels. Well, we're all children of the 80s and into the 90s and, you know, even into the 2000s. Uh, Tom Petty was one of the greats and uh, you know sometimes people didn't know it sometimes people didn't appreciate it but going to a Tom Petty show felt like going to a dead show in many respects uh, you know he, he knew how to play to the crowd he knew the songs they liked to hear he played them so well and so tight he'd throw in covers from time to time and it, no surprise that uh, he toured with the dead he toured with Bob Dylan um, and would still be out there touring if he didn't uh, uh, succumb, unfortunately, uh, at the very, very young age of 69 to some heart issues, uh, which was all very unfortunate. But leave it to our crack producer, Dan Humiston, to come up with a way to tie this into the uh, theme of our show, if you will, the uh, lead-in music to our um, marijuana portion of the show. So it turns out that you don't know how it feels. Uh, the lead single from Petty's 1994 solo album, Wildflowers, he says... Uh, let me get to the point. Let's roll another joint. Well, it turns out that that particular sentiment um, and the specificity with which it was said led the folks at MTV to a rather uneasy feeling. But rather than ban the song's video, which would have lost them a lot of money because that's what they were all about, they simply ran an edited version, and this is in the pre-AI days, so um, this is amazing, that right? They played the word joint backwards in the video. So as Petty says, imagine my surprise when this song comes on television and they say, let's roll another news. And I guess that's kind of right, because if you say joint backwards, the T there would probably have to be silent. I guess the N could be silent. Tuj, but news, I think, just sounds better anyway. Um, but, you know, Petty said, I thought news sounded even worse than joint, because I don't know if you've ever had a news, but it sounds really wicked. And 
you know, typical petty humor in the midst of all of this, um, which I love. And, you know, just one of these little stories that you don't know about if you're not listening to our podcast. And uh, thank you again to Dan for finding uh, new and unique and very interesting ways uh, to preview the uh, uh, cannabis section of our show. But we're going to dive in and we're going to start off with a story from Thailand. Um, This is from Cultivated Media, and uh, we thank them. Um, And uh, here's what's happening. The uh, Thailand's health ministry has introduced a new draft bill recently that would essentially kill the country's booming cannabis industry. Now, you know, let's not kid ourselves. Um, Thailand and cannabis have always been inextricably linked uh, when we were in college, people were talking about, uh, oh, I can get some Thai stick and we can smoke some Thai stick, uh, a strain that everyone, uh, you know, uh, believed, truthfully or not, was from Thailand. And because it was from Thailand, that, of course, instantly meant that it must be the best marijuana that any of us younger people had ever smoked. And I'm sure there were many nights when we were smoking something that somebody called Thai stick that probably wasn't even Thai stick, where we all felt like we were a lot higher than we probably were just because we thought... Uh, that we were smoking Thai stick. But, you know, there, there is a big cannabis tourism industry in Thailand as well. Uh, so now the health industry comes out with a new draft bill on Sunday that would kill the cannabis industry. The draft bill would deem recreational cannabis consumption illegal, only allowing medical consumption, and would levy fines of around uh, $1,700 for rule breakers. Uh, those found to be selling cannabis recreationally would face fines of $100,000 uh, bot and uh, B-A-H-T, which is their currency. And if 60 baht equals 1,700, I'll let you do the math as to what 100,000 baht equals in dollars. Or they could face up to a year in jail. Um, And this is driving the news right now because Thailand became the first country in otherwise relatively conservative Southeast Asia to decriminalize cannabis in 2022. But stop if you've heard this before. The absence of proactive policymaking after decriminalization, cannabis shops sprouted up throughout the country, particularly in busy areas of Bangkok. It's busy uh, tourist areas. It's uh, Bangkok, the country's biggest city. Shops are loosely regulated. and The Thai government struggled to create effective rules to govern the legal market. In other words, it's a bit of a wild west. There are far too many shops selling far too similar products for the market to continue to support their existence. And concerns remain over the quality of the supply chain and how consumers are protected from inhaling pesticides or other heavy metals uh, that may be found in the cannabis, uh, the, the marijuana that they're smoking over there. So law, lawmakers argued over how to best regulate the market and decided to go for a half-in and half-out decriminalization measure. Of course, as we've, we've talked about when, when people have... Uh, tried to push that here um, in the United States, including our good friend Ross Dothate from the New York Times, who said, no, let's just go back. It's a disaster. You know, this only serves to exacerbate and magnify the worst effects of cannabis legalization while letting the myriad benefits from tax revenue to job creation and economic growth go uncaptured. Um, uh, you know, In Thailand right now, uh, people report the situation looks very much like New York. There are bootleg cannabis shops on every street corner, Selling all sorts of products was what seemed to be quite inflated THC percentages on the label. And why not? There's nobody regulating them. And they probably figure most Americans just see and think it's uh, um, uh, Thai weed, so it, it must be awesome. And, and they're buying it. And it's obvious that the situation would fuel cannabis op- opponents who conflate poorly regulated cannabis markets with yields of legalization more generally. Again, see Ross Dothate in his very stupid uh, column. It's fuel for those of us who are against legalization 
uh, for spurious reasons. Other countries should take note. Have a clear plan in place if your lawmakers want to push for decriminalization. Clarity in what the goals of legalization are and how to accomplish them is very important. Otherwise, you become Thailand or California, I suppose, for that matter. Um, cannabis, uh, Thailand's cannabis industry obviously isn't happy about the bill, and voters will have until January 26th to offer their comments. Democracy looks a bit different in Thailand than it does in the U.S. for many reasons, uh, but it remains to be seen whether public pressure uh, will force the government to change course, and we'll have to see what happens. Of course, depending on what happens to the election here in November, uh, our governments may be a lot closer uh, the way they operate than any of us would like to have to admit. But, um, you know, the part about this I find funny is, you know, here it could be on this side of the world, and Thailand, you know, which kind of has this reputation of, of a, a relationship to cannabis for years and years and years, finally goes legal but doesn't have rules. This is what did happen in New York. This is what happened in Illinois. There were problems here. This is what happened in Oklahoma. And we'll be reading about the impact of that in a minute uh, with a story. Um, but, but this is just a situation where uh, just poor government planning. And we've talked about this very specifically about how uh, people who enjoy uh, marijuana should not be punished because a government ushers it in as a uh, legal use without doing its homework and creating laws uh, that should really be uh, mandating and regulating the market the way it needs to be. But that's just uh, uh, you know, a, a typical government um, idea that you know, they and only they really know how to best do this, even though none of them even know how to talk the talk, let alone walk the walk. And so Thailand, here's another example uh, where the legislators couldn't be bothered by working with the people uh, who are on the street and kind of know the way the market works. And so uh, now they're having some ills with the program. And of course, that's just going to lead them to shut it down, which will create a whole new set of problems uh, that we don't have to worry about because we're not going there. But if you are going there, keep that in mind and, and don't think you're just going to go over there to get your hands on the best weed around. Um, what else is new uh, internationally? Well, uh, legalizing recreational cannabis in Ontario a new study says, has yet to lead to an uptick in psychosis-related disorders. Uh, this is published, uh, this study, in the International Journal of Drug Policy. While adolescent can cannabis use can be a precursor to psychiatric disorders, as some research shows, and we've always acknowledged that on this show and in the industry, and nobody, nobody endorses underage cannabis use. It's not to say that underage kids won't. It's not to say that we didn't smoke. When we were teenagers, uh, and some of my friends back to the very beginning of their teenage years, 12 and 13, and you know, I've never really noticed a correlation between that and any subsequent uh, psychoses, although then people like to argue it's much stronger now than it was back then, and yeah, 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 but that's okay. Um, you know, uh, so they go on to point out that some anti-legalization advocates, including noted vaccine skeptic Alex Berenson, we don't talk about him a lot because I don't like to really give him any attention, have peddled outright misinformation, including uh, that legal cannabis would lead to an uptick in violent crime everywhere it's legalized. And of course, this hasn't happened. We've talked about the studies that violence has gone down, domestic violence has gone down, DUIs have gone down, traffic deaths have gone down. So kind of really exactly the opposite of uh, uh, what Mr. Berenson tried to peddle as uh, uh, his knowledgeable uh, views on marijuana. Uh, you know, and it, it's, it's classic reefer madness slightly less racial overtones and updated for the 21st century. Um, but uh, Berenson and his crew and his ilk have struck out pretty much on every ill that they predicted 
would be the result of marijuana legalization. So, uh, you know, go suck eggs, guys, but we're still out here uh, having fun and enjoying ourselves and trying to be responsible and uh, teaching our kids to be responsible as well. Um, and, you know, I would still rather have my boys smoking marijuana than I would have them drinking. So you can call me crazy, you can call me sane, uh, just don't call me late for the next bong hit. One more story, and we talked about the Wild West and markets that open and generally just kind of throw the doors wide open without really thinking about it, and that's Oklahoma. <coughs> Thank you to our good friends over at MJ Biz Daily, specifically <coughs> reporter Kate Robertson, who points out that amid a glut of both regulated and illicit marijuana production in 2023, Oklahoma regulators cracked down on businesses they believe to be non-compliant. Critics say the state regulators overstepped their bounds, but others argue more oversight is needed for wholesale prices to recover. In January 2023, there were 7,066 acts of licenses for cannabis grows in the state, according to a spokesperson at the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority. Uh, OMMA. Now there are only 4,880, a pretty significant decline. Um, they take the position that through data-driven decisions, support and feedback from medical cannabis patients, industry leaders, partners across the state, uh, uh, that the government was able to tackle the illicit operators and non-compliant licensees efficiently and effectively protecting patients in public health, they, they published. Uh, they oversaw more than 7,000 facility inspections and 4,600 operational status visits. Um, and then they did a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, they've recently put a moratorium on current cultivation licensing. It's been extended now uh, until 2026. Uh, they claim to have uh, implemented a rigorous license application review process to prevent bad actors from ever entering our state's medical market. Now, that's not bad. And, you know, that's to be congratulated. I suppose, but that's kind of the whole point in the first place. And, you know, for Oklahoma, they're basically their position was, if you want it, you're in, fill out this form. We'll give you a license, have at it. You know, we'll let the market dictate who is successful and not, and who won't be successful. And that can work up to a point. Um, but you still have to be mindful of the people who have the licenses who are operating, just like who you would give a license to to be able to sell liquor or who you would give a license to to be a pharmacist or to dispense anything else that we think might be potentially harmful to people or something that we just want to make sure can be properly regulated. So in 2023, the, the agency had 1,314 administrative cases and seized tons of illicit marijuana. On the one hand, you say, hey, great enforcement, guys. On the other hand, you say, idiots, if you had just done a little bit of vetting up front, you wouldn't have had so many non-compliant people and you wouldn't have had to waste so much time and taxpayer dollars going around and uh, doing all this regulation and stuff that you did. So, you know, it doesn't have to be much. It doesn't mean like you have to have these open competitions like we had in Illinois and other states that were terrible disasters and, and, and really ruined the markets before they were, ever had a chance to get going in, turning, in terms of those market makeups and uh, uh, logistics and demographics and, 
and all of that kind of stuff. But you can say the market is generally open, but in order to get in, you must still meet certain minimum requirements. You must have, be able to show you have the, enough money to be able to open it up. You have to show that you don't have any prior uh, uh, um, criminal records, especially in, in, in drugs. Uh, you know, any of these things that, you know, a board of criminal experts and, and people like that could easily sit down and put together. Um, and I could sit down with, you know, anybody who's a lawyer could, could sit down with enough time and, and figure out a comprehensive list of things. And you do simple background checks and you find out. You don't have to put people in direct competition, though, to see who can spend more money to hire a better expert to come up with a better bullshit plan that they're never going to use anyway, uh, you know, as a, as a build out for their uh, proposed um, uh, cultivation license um, or um, uh, dispensary license. So, you know, as a result, they really wind up spending all this time and energy and money going through and trying to regulate a, basically uh, a market that they created that never really had any hope of being regulated uh, from the very beginning. So, you know, there's some people who, who like it there. There's some people who don't. The small operators are really beginning to get tired of it because they just don't have enough money to run with it every time the government changes whatever direction they want to go. And, uh, you know, that's problematic too. Um, I'm always sorry to see this because we want to see marijuana grow. We want to see it prosper. We want to see the, the market, the legitimate market, uh, you know, really take hold so we can kind of move beyond this idea where, oh, we're still new. Oh, we're still taking baby steps. Oh, we're still, you know, walking on eggshells so we don't, so we don't upset the squares or the locals or, you know, whatever you want to call the other people in there, um, the Ross Dothats. You know, you can come up with any name you want and throw it out there, uh, and it works. Um, but it's here and it, it's not going anywhere. So, you know, we all just have to mellow out a little bit and, and uh, you know, give society as a whole time to come to grips with that and accept it one way or another. Um, because if we don't, I think it's going to be a bigger problem for society than it's going to be for the people who enjoy smoking marijuana. And, you know, that's just the way it is. It's like claiming that teaching abstinence will stop, you know, uh, pre premarital uh, babies and premarital sex even though people have been preaching that for 5,000 years and it's never been true. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of people my age who when they were teenagers thought that was the stupidest thing they ever heard and now that their adults try to peddle it to their kids, you know, and that's just being hypocritical, you know, because if it was stupid for us, it's stupid for them. Um, but, you know, th that's what we're going to have to deal with and uh, I think it's a bigger loss for them than it is for us because we've all found our way to something that we believe is, 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 is good, is helpful, uh, has its benefits, uh, creates relaxation, um, and, and allows us to have a better viewpoint on the world and all the craziness, especially right now that we find ourselves uh, rolled up. And when all else fails, God damn it, go see the Grateful Dead. So we go back to April 6, 1989, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Chrysler Arena, uh, for our next song.
Scarlet Begonias in and of itself is such a great, wonderful tune. It, it whips a Grateful Dead crowd up into a frenzy. And it's only appropriate that, um, you know, while in town celebrating a national championship, that uh, they'd pull out a Scarlet Fire. And of course, Fire on the Mountain is a song that was uh, almost always paired up with Scarlet Begonias. Not always, but uh, very frequently. Um, and uh, in fact, I think after they started playing Fire on the Mountain, I can't remember a situation where they played Scarlet without going into the Fire on the Mountain, except for a couple of years when they were like playing around and they'd go from Scarlet into going to Hell in a Bucket just because why not? Let's see what people like about that. And eventually they went back to Scarlet Fire because you know you, you can't really fix something that's not broken and that's you know really one of the, the highlights of your set. Um, and, and Scarlet Begonias. Uh, was such a perfect song to play that night, not just because of its celebratory overtones and, uh, uh, and good feelings that it produces, but you know this particular part of the song that we just clipped here for you guys to listen to really says it all, right? The wind and the willows play T for two. The sky was yellow, read maize, and the sun was blue. So we have our whole maize and blue thing going there. Uh, and once again, whether Jerry knew it or not, baby, he was, uh, he was feeding the frenzy in the crowd because we all loved it. Uh, and we were right on top of it. We had been waiting for it from the minute we heard the beginning of the song because we knew they were going to get to that point. It would be a, uh, a fun little shout out. Uh, on this night, uh, my brother Steve, who was actually a student in Ann Arbor at the time, came for his first Grateful Dead show ever. And he went on to see quite a number himself. And Fish now, and uh, you know all the other bands that are out there, uh, and he's deep into it. But uh, my wife Judy and I were very happy that uh, we went up there and we were able to bring him along to see a show, and he got to join in and not just see a show, but go with our gang and you know really, really see how uh, you know the Deadheads did it, if you will, right? Uh, all the ways you know all the good fun we had and just everything about really enjoying the show and getting the most out of it. So it was great to have him along. And, uh, you know, he and I often now listen to a lot of Grateful Dead music together, buy anything that they put on sale, and um, try to find other music that stimulates us as much. And Fish is certainly on the list, and a few other bands as well, Goose, and some others that these days rightfully deserve to be there and, you know, have kind of earned their chops and demonstrated their abilities. But uh, this was Scarlet. It, it was, uh, was released by the Dead on the Mars Hotel, album from the Mars Hotel. June 27th, 1974, a very understated Grateful Dead album that doesn't get nearly the attention and credit it deserves given the plethora of big-time dead tunes that came off of that album and just the whole concept of it, which always cracked me up. And we'll get to it one of these days, maybe this summer, uh, since it was released in June of 1974. Scarlet Begonias was played 317 times. It was first played on March 23rd, 1974 at the Cow Palace in Daly City, California. It was last played on July 2nd, 1995 at Deer Creek Music Theater in Noblesville, Indiana, just outside of Indianapolis. And, uh, you know, that that's a lot closer to the uh, final two shows at Soldier Field, uh, but they still, we, we didn't get it uh, uh, in St. Louis, and we didn't get it at Soldier Field, so I missed my final uh, opportunity to see a Scarlet Fire, uh, but it's a great tune nonetheless, and it was perfect for that night. Um, and before we before we close out here, and we will close out with the uh, with the encore that they played, uh, which is Broke Down Palace, because it's such a beautiful tune that we want to make sure uh, that we kind of go out on that. Always a great way to say goodnight and end uh, a good story, but um, this is a lot of fun. 
Uh, here's hoping that uh, Michigan wins a few more championships and we have a little more opportunity to, to kind of focus on them. However, and fair is fair, and uh, uh, I, I made a promise to Dan that as his Buffalo Bills make their way through the NFL playoffs, uh, we will start to devote a little more attention to them. And I think, uh, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't have enough chance to, to really uh, review it and prepare it for today, but we're going to have to go back to the now tried and tested, uh, tried and true tested Michigan's uh, factoring for who's going to win a game, right, by looking at the number of times the Grateful Dead played in the state and which state has uh, the most marijuana dispensaries. And uh, that twice predicted Michigan victories and twice Michigan did over uh, Alabama, kicked their butt so bad, Lou Saban retired. And Washington kicked their butt so bad, the coach left to go to Alabama. So, you know, go figure it. it it's all good fun. It's great to be a Michigan Wolverine. Um, shout out to... Uh, uh, all my big Michigan buddies out there, um, who always uh, who are always cheering us on and um, uh, who we always have a really great time with. Um, good news that my buddy Ken Dog just shared with us, and it looks like Jim Harbaugh may be back, even possibly J.J. McCarthy for another year, uh, which would make Michigan fans everywhere just overjoyed uh, and make all the fans in Columbus, Ohio, shed tears. But what are you going to do? You know, you are who you are, we are who we are, and nobody's trading places. So. Uh, to Kenny, to all the M legends everywhere. Uh, we're going to leave you with Broke Down Palace. Have a great week. Stay warm. It's about to be below zero for a week here in Chicago. If you have warm weather, screw you. If you're in cold weather like us, button up and uh, enjoy it. Have a great week. Be safe and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>
Learn about what is truly next in the cannabis space by joining myself, Brian Fields, and Kellen Finney every week on the Dime Podcast and, of course, on PodConnects.